Thank you, Pastor Tad. Good morning again, everyone. Any uh, kids, preschoolers, uh, grade school kids that are headed to Gospel Project, now's your uh, time to go. Hope you have a great time. Uh, everybody else will be in Matthew chapter 5, so if you would take out a Bible and turn there. If you don't have one, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. Feel free to take that um, as your own. As Tad said, we're starting a new a series today. Uh, Dom, as he was named, was a skilled thief. He was the best of his time, actually. His goal wasn't to steal physical property, but rather intellectual. In other words, he was after your ideas. His weapon, if you will, was a medicine of sorts that put you in a deep sleep, very much like what you may have as I preach. It, it worked. Uh, Dom Cobb became the world's foremost corporate thief. But this thievery led him into ruin. He became uh, hated by many and lived much of life on the run. What he needed to get out of it was a reversal of sorts. He needed to counter what he had done. So instead of stealing ideas, he set out to implant them. Dom, of course, is a fictional character. Anybody remember the movie? Austin, I think Austin liked it. Austin's twisting his beard in a fury, thinking about the movie. This blockbuster movie, Inception, portrayed a reality-bending theme of dreams within dreams. Well, this sermon is going to be a bit like that, because this is going to be a sermon on a sermon, a sermon within a sermon. You see, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is, without a doubt, the most famous sermon that's ever been preached. It was preached by Jesus himself. Known as the Sermon on the Mount, this message can only be rightly referred to as magnificent. My hope uh, this morning is that we could get a, a sense of the whole in order that then you would choose to get together with other brothers and sisters in Christ or perhaps even a non-Christian friend and read through it and study it more closely in the days and weeks ahead. Now, why the Sermon on the Mount, you might ask? Well, our habit as a congregation is most frequently to simply start at the beginning of a book of the Bible and slowly work our way through paragraph by paragraph and still we've studied the whole thing. But in this uh, sermon series, it's going to last six weeks, we're going to instead look at different moments in the book of Matthew as Jesus teaches about the church. So we're going to look at a topic within a book instead of working our way through a whole book. If you're new to church, this will paint a great picture for you of what the church is supposed to be, what Jesus says about his people. And if you're already a part of this church, I hope it will be an encouragement to you about the work that God's doing among us as we ask him to do still more. I think there's no better place to start than this sermon within a sermon. These three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, 
give us a full scope idea of what life looks like when we come under the good rule and reign of God. You see, people look like who they follow. And so if we follow Jesus, this is what we will look like. These 111 verses are what we might call Jesus' manifesto. They are his description of a delightful people. Now, like every good sermon, Jesus' sermon has an introduction and a, a body and a conclusion. And so what I want to do with you this morning is just spend a little bit of time on each part, introduction, body, and conclusion, and encourage you to look at it in more detail. As we work our way through this message, try to think about this question, if you would. What are the people of Jesus' church like? How are they described? That's what this sermon within a sermon is about. Look at verse 1 with me of Matthew chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Church, as we think about church together, this is certainly one of the most important passages in the whole Bible. In essence, Jesus says in these blessed or blessed statements, that the people of God are marked by certain norms or certain outlooks, certain values. They have a particular way of thinking. They have a particular kind of character. And as such, they are blessed. Brothers and sisters, to be the church, Jesus says, is to be people who mourn, to be people who are poor in spirit, to be people who are meek. Now, none of those things sound particularly attractive, do they? And yet, that's what Jesus starts with. He starts by saying, we must be people who are poor in spirit. In other words, people who are humble and broken. We must be people who mourn over sin. We must be people who are meek. Now, even though those might not sound attractive, certainly the results are the kingdom of God, the comfort of God, and God's earth. Jesus went on to say the church must be desperate for spiritual uprightness, marked by intense humility, merciful and pure and peacemakers, so in love with God, God's word, God's people, that even the most evil things done to us or said about us don't knock us away from Christ. 
Friends, this is the king's portrait of his people. This is the king's message of his kingdom. Imagine with me for a moment what it would be like to actually be people like that. Imagine what it would be like to be a church like that. Arrogance and pride would be noticeably absent. There'd be no spiritual bullies trying to one-up each other by who knows more. When somebody struggles, instead of ignoring or pretending, everyone would be merciful and helpful. When there's conflict, people wouldn't run, but rather they'd sit down, look each other eye to eye, and work it out, forgive and reconcile. There'd be no busted relationships. People wouldn't pretend to be closer to God than they actually are. There would be a hunger and a thirst for God. There'd be a passion to hear what God says and a desire to follow through. Indifference would be gone. Commitment would be strong. A seriousness and expectation, not apathy or indifference, would mark life together. Doesn't that sound wonderful? That's what Jesus has in mind for his church. And that's what Jesus says is ordinary and typical of his people. Now, verses 11 through 16 indicate the result of this collective community. Jesus said that it's, it's twofold, that when people are like that, then the result would be a certain saltiness. Now, those younger in the room, not that kind of saltiness, rather a, a purifying, preserving effect on the culture. And the other result, or the other side of that result, is that we would be a people of a certain luminosity, that there would be a life-giving, shining effect on society. Jesus says if we focus on being this kind of people, then we will find ourselves being salt and light to Tempe. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that first two-thirds of your Bible, all of this may sound very familiar. For the Old Testament's full of admonition in this way. Think in particular about the book of Exodus, where Moses went up on a mountain in order to receive God's law. And then he came down and taught it to the people. Jesus, who's the better Moses, went up on the mountain, but he didn't need to be given God's law because he is God. And so he simply opened his mouth and began to speak. And he too gave a message to the people, a message about the character of the people of God. See, Jesus is the long-awaited king who brought the long-awaited kingdom in himself. And this is how his people live. Now, that was Jesus' introduction in his sermon. And chapter 5, verse 17 through chapter 7, verse 12, contain his, the, his body, his message, the main part of what he set out to say. Jesus addressed four things in this topic, 
And I'd love to just speak briefly to each of them. He talks about righteousness, authenticity, treasures, and relationships. We'll spend a few moments on each. First, in chapter 5, verse 17 through 48, he spoke of true righteousness. Now jump down to verse 20, if you would. Jesus makes a rather audacious statement. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is insane. Think about the most godly, humble, devoted, just, mature person you know. Do you have somebody in mind? Hopefully you're not thinking of yourself, because that would be to disqualify the, the characteristics. But that most mature person you know. Now hear what Jesus is saying. You've got to be better than that person, or you don't get the kingdom of God. You, your spirituality must exceed even that folk, that person, or you don't get the kingdom of heaven. That's nuts. Now, in these remaining verses in this section, Jesus goes on to show examples of what that looks like. He says that true righteousness is not just our behavior, but rather it's what happens in the heart. Seven times Jesus follows this pattern. He, he says, you've, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and in each case, what he does is he takes uh, the law or something commonly thought of as what God expects, and he intensifies it. He turns up the volume. He goes beyond behavior down into the heart. And in so doing, he's saying, look at the scribes, look at the Pharisees. Think of the most religious people you know, and you've got to have a conformity to God that's superior to theirs. Because conformity isn't just behavior. It's rather the inside. So, for example, Jesus says, it's not just murder that's evil. It's anger. Jesus says, it's not just sleeping with someone that's not your spouse that's adultery. Oh no, if you have a cultivated thought about sleeping with someone, not your spouse, that's adultery too. He, he says, yes, love your friends, but you've got to love your enemies. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Now all these Examples of exceeding righteousness build to verse 48, which is one of the most crazy verses in the entire Bible. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is saying, you, you want the kingdom of God, you want to be a member of the church, okay, you got to be entirely, thoroughly, completely blameless. Now, friends, who doesn't want to not be owned by your own rage? Who doesn't want 
to not be overcome with lust. Who doesn't want to not be thoroughly convinced of your own goodness such that you're selfish to the core? This is a vision of life that's extremely compelling. That's why so many people throughout history, even people who didn't believe in Jesus as God, found this sermon to be so helpful. This vision of life is compelling, but it's also crushing. You see, none of us meet these standards. Not a single one. No one has an exceeding righteousness of this kind. As far as I know, there are no murderers in the room. If so, keep it to yourself. But we've all had sinful anger. Hear Jesus' word. Unless your righteousness exceeds the Pharisees and scribes, you can't join my kingdom. Unless you are perfect like the Father, you don't get in. Jesus didn't go soft on this message, did he? But friends, therein is the gospel of the kingdom of God. You see, Jesus didn't lessen the law. He fulfilled it. And so this righteousness that God demands from all of us is a righteousness that we cannot possibly earn. It is a righteousness we can't possibly behave our way into. Rather, it's a righteousness that must be given to us. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came in order to live the life that we are all commanded to live, but can't, in order that then he could die the death we all deserve to die. This is the essential message of the church, that we, in fact, don't have this kind of righteousness unless it's been given to us by Christ. Paul put it this way in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see, friend, when you go to work tomorrow, you're not expecting to be given a gift of your wages. Imagine your boss coming to you and handing you your paycheck and saying, I have a gift for you that you have not earned. That's not the way work works. But friends, that's exactly how faith works. Faith is not a work. Faith is a gift. And that gift is given by God. If we but believe, if we but turn from our sin and turn to God with simple childlike trust, then we are given the righteousness that God requires. Isn't that amazing? I hope if you've been hearing that longer than I've been alive that you never tire of it. For this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, a righteousness given to us, not a righteousness we earn.
You see, the position of Christian is received, not achieved. Only Jesus has this intrinsic righteousness, and only Jesus can give it to us. The church is made up of people not who drum up their own exceeding righteousness, but rather receive the righteousness of Jesus as the exceptional gift that he is. That's how Jesus started this main body of his sermon, by drilling down into the very heart of what Christianity is all about. Now he moves on in chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, to what we today might call authenticity. Verse 1 says, Matthew 6, verse 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. In the next 17 verses, Jesus took the three most commonly thought of spiritual uh, trophies, if you will, of the day, and said, if you do any of these things in order to be seen as spiritual, then you're wasting your time. Jesus talks about giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. And in so doing, he ripped the guts out of inauthentic religion. Jesus says, praying to be thought of as spiritual, giving to be viewed as gracious, and abstaining from food in order to look committed to God is hypocritical. You might be able to fool other people, but you can't fool God. Now hang with me for a minute. That is wonderful news. That's great news. Authenticity is often thought of today as all the rage. What's most important? Tad said a few weeks ago in his sermon, you be you is the motto of the day. And that's true. Everywhere we look, we are told to be authentic. Do what you want. That's our modern definition of authenticity. But did you know that's not actually what the word means? The word authenticity means being someone or something that has met the standard of authentication. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, maybe an illustration would help. If you traveled out of the country this summer, when you came back, you needed to use your passport. And so you got in line, you went through passport control, they took your passport, and they scanned it. What were they doing? Well, they were checking to make sure your passport was authentic. They were authenticating it. They were checking to see, is this fake or real? Does it look like the real thing, but it's not? Or is it the real thing? That, friends, is authenticity. That's what it means to be authentic. We've totally confused this today. Jesus says spiritual authenticity is when there's alignment of right action for the right reason where behavior is done for the right motive. That's authenticated Christianity. Church, as the gathered people of God here, we aim not to be hypocrites. 
We aim to be people who have learned to live out Jesus' righteousness in such a way that our motives and our behaviors are aligned. Maybe on that trip you took this summer, you rode a train, and that train had two tracks. They ran side by side. If a piece of that track was missing, you wouldn't be here today. Both tracks got to go the whole way. And friends, that's the way it works with life. Our behaviors, if they would be truly honoring to God, have to be coupled, have to run side by side with right motive. Or we go off the rails. And so when we think about godly behavior and godly motive, not sure about you, but this is one of the most convicting things in this whole sermon for me. It is so easy to do things to be thought of in particular ways, isn't it? And yet that's hollow. That's empty. That's not getting through passport control of genuine Christianity. God's not impressed. And yet this perhaps most difficult thing Jesus says in his sermon is just one more wonderful thing to cause us to run back to Jesus. Because Jesus has given us righteousness, then we can increasingly learn to actually live it. A great way to work this out in practice is what we might call Secret generosity. If you're finding that as we're talking about authenticity, that you're feeling and recognizing your inauthenticity, then you might this week think of somebody, a friend, a a family member, maybe even someone you don't like, and do something for them and don't tell anybody. You'll find that to be cathartic your hypocrisy. Now, speaking of money or giving, look down at verse 19. Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Man, Jesus does not let up. Jesus, in this section of his sermon, deals with treasures. Brothers and sisters, we have been rescued out of being mastered by money in order to have a better master, Jesus. You see, money is a lousy master. Money demands everything. Money promises everything. But money can't deliver on anything. Money was never meant to dominate our lives. It's meant to be a tool through which we help each other and survive. But in so many cases, we become a slave to it. So Jesus says, remember, the debt of sin has been forgiven by my precious death. 
And that debt of sin has bought you out of your sin debt. Therefore, don't live for money anymore. We've been delivered out of slavery to stuff in order that we would be trophies of grace. So don't return again to being mastered by money. Don't live for how much you make. Live for Jesus. Don't hoard or worry. Seek his kingdom. Exchange worry about money for confidence in God. Can you feel the weight of anxiety lifting even as we just consider that kind of life? A life where money isn't master, but Jesus is. That's what God calls the church to. To treasure God, not financial success. And Jesus makes an incredible promise. He said, if we seek first the things of God, then God will provide for our most basic needs. This sense of holding things loosely, of sharing generously, has, of course, significant impact on relationships. And that's where Jesus ends this body of his message. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 12 deal with relationships. Our relationships first with each other, then our relationships with non-Christians, and then our relationships with the Father. It's a comprehensive picture of how we relate to God and people. Whether it's being critical of others or apprehensive before God in prayer, the kingdom of God functions on the currency of grace. Grace is how we operate. Grace is how we think. Grace is how we relate. Grace is to be the foundation of how we interact. Grace for each other because we've been given grace from God. Grace for non-Christians because we're hoping and praying that they will find the grace of God. Grace in how we come to God in prayer because God is always and forever gracious towards his people. This is the very essence of relationships. Those who have experienced grace will be quick to see their own sin and therefore slower to confront. And they'll be bold in asking God for things. Do you see how all these pieces fit together? When we are people who have experienced grace, will be people quick to extend grace. Now, where does all this end? Well, Jesus aptly concludes his sermon in verses 13 to 29 with a powerful, confrontive conclusion. In these final paragraphs of Jesus' Jesus' marvelous sermon, he talks about a whole bunch of pairs, not the food, but rather groupings of ideas. He, he talks about two gates, two paths, two trees, two fruit, two ways of life, and two outcomes. If you don't believe me, look. 
I wonder if he was thinking about the ark at the time, you know, the two by two by two. Jesus' sermon and every other religious, philosophical, ethical vision of life are not the same. They're dramatically different. You see, Jesus, in his conclusion, is in a sense saying, you don't get a little bit of me. That doesn't work. You can't mix a little Jesus and a little self-help, a little Jesus and a little Buddha, a little Jesus and a little bit of spiritualism, and it all work out in the end. Despite the prevalence of that way of thinking today, it doesn't work. Jesus, in a very aggressive way, in this conclusion, says, there are only two options. And for all the talk of Jesus' love, he's rather dogmatic on this point. Jesus says, you get him or utter ruin. There is no other way. You get Jesus or nothing. Jesus won't be co-pilot with anyone. Church, this part of his sermon is not particularly popular, but it is where he concludes. He concludes by saying, you either hear these words, receive this grace, or fail in the most important thing. Individually, we either enter eternal life through the gift of Jesus' righteousness, or we arrogantly assume our own and perish. Friends, nothing else in all of life comes with this degree of seriousness because the consequences are eternal. We might say church is where we should keep it all the way 100. It's the grace of God or the wrath of God. It's the grace of God or ruin. Have you considered the seriousness of where you are with God? Have you reckoned the inadequacy of self-righteousness and the necessity of Jesus' righteousness being given to you. Brothers and sisters, that's what this sermon is for. May our life as a church family be increasingly reflective of a spiritual seriousness for this is the most important thing about you and the most important thing about us. Do we have Jesus' righteousness or do we have none? Church, may we increasingly find ourselves being salt and light to Tempe. May we increasingly live out the righteousness Jesus has given us. 
May we listen and respond to God's word. And in so doing, may we be a delightful people. If you're here this morning and you have not received the gift of Christ and his righteousness, you can. What it requires is not a massive change in your behavior such that you render yourself acceptable to God. No, what it requires is a change of mind. It requires a turning from your own sense of rightness to the one true rightness, Jesus Christ. If you believe that Jesus came and died and rose again, and if you turn from your sin to him, you will find him to be life itself. Don't delay. If you believe, may today be the day. You can turn to him right now in your own prayer, receiving a righteousness not your own, such that it will become your own, because Jesus will make himself yours. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the most essential, foundational message of the church. Let's pray. And before I voice a prayer for us, would you take a moment to go to God in prayer yourself? Father, Jesus' vision for his people is so compelling. It's also crushing because we recognize our inability to live up to it. And so we pray as a church that, Father, you would increasingly help us to live in the righteousness of Christ. And to relate to you on the basis of the gospel. Such that we see Jesus fulfilled the law. In order that he would die in our place and rise again in victory. Where we have fallen short as a church of living with this kind of compelling love and generosity. We pray that you would forgive us. Help us to not be satisfied with less than what you have articulated. And we pray that your word would ring in our ears as we seek to live this way this week. In Jesus' name.